join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, Ontario remembers Her Majesty the Queen as the second Elizabethan era comes to an end. School is back in full force, but COVID restrictions are not. NDP members decide to take a two-week social assistance diet. A bill to free up hospital beds by moving seniors to long-term care takes some heat. And when is patronage patronage? And when is it just hiring people who think like you? It's Tuesday, September 13th, 2022, so let's get to it. Just before we start, who, who are you? Who is this person <laughs> sitting opposite me? Who is this person who is in the same sound booth as me for the first time in two and a half years? Well, hi, my name is John Michael McGrath. Ah, nice I've to meet your acquaintance. I've been the other voice on the other side of the Zoom channel from you. <laughs> you want to explain, this is the first time we've been together, we've actually seen each other in person yeah. doing this podcast in two, since COVID. Yeah, yeah. Uh, back in March of 2020, we started doing it remotely from uh, your attic and my linen closet, <laughs> respectively. Um, and uh, we have since even uh, this year, we have done some while we were both in the same building, but we hadn't worked out the kinks of doing it in actually in the same room. And this is, of course, how we used to do it back pre-COVID. So mm -hmm. it's just taken some, some work to get back into the habit of it. It's another indication that hopefully things are getting safer back to more of normal am i allowed to say that anyway good to see you john michael yeah good to see you steve thank you okay let's get into it here um this really has been an extraordinary past week uh, what with the death of queen elizabeth ii the outpouring of admiration and respect for her 70 years of service to her country to our country and to so many other countries around the world uh you know i if i can i'd like to tell you a little story here i was actually at queen's park the morning of her death we're talking last thursday and I, I had a meeting at Queen's Park early in the morning, and I heard the news that she really wasn't doing too well. But at that point, there was no indication that her life might end later that day. Now, having said that, there is a 70th anniversary Platinum Jubilee exposition at the legislature on the main floor. And for whatever reason, something that, you know what, I might have walked right past on previous occasions. This time, for whatever reason, something just called me and I walked towards it and I took several minutes to take it all in. I wanted to see all the books and the plates and the documents that she signed last time she was here and the picture, you know, the whole thing. I wanted to see it all. And then just a few hours later, the news emerged that she had, in fact, died. And you know what? It was just one of those moments where I'm thinking, I'm just glad I did that. I'm glad I had a chance to take that in. Uh, what changed at Queen's Park since the Queen's death? So to start with, flags at the legislative building uh, have been lowered to half-mast. They were returned to full-mast on the day of proclamation of the accession of the new sovereign. That was on Monday. Uh, they were then lowered again uh, and will remain lowered at half-mast until the day of the state funeral, which uh, will be on the 19th of September. Uh, the portrait of Queen Elizabeth uh, that hangs in the legislature uh, now has uh, black ribbons on it. Uh, the black ribbon symbolizes remembrance and mourning and uh, will remain in place until further notice. Uh, people might recall, because we discussed it a bit on this podcast, when uh, Prince Philip died, uh, there, there was also a portrait of Prince Philip at Queen's Park that was uh, covered in black cloth and then removed sometime after his death and after the funeral. 
At some point in the future, we will expect that Elizabeth's portrait itself would be removed and it will be replaced with a, a portrait of the new King Charles III. Uh, the House has adjourned until Wednesday at 2 p.m. The MPPs will return to the House on Wednesday to pay tribute to the late Queen. Uh, the Assembly's website has been updated to include a photo gallery of Her Majesty's visits to Queen's Park throughout the years. Uh, one thing that uh, maybe is, uh, it's, it's nerdy, it's up our alley. Uh, <laughs> people may not know that the, the years of the legislature or, or the years of, of parliamentary business are calendared in the, the, the years of the Queen's reign. So last week was year 71 of Elizabeth II. <laughs> um, and this week, when the legislature reconvenes, will be the start of year one of Charles III. Uh, and and you, you find those numbers in legislative documents. But there, there is a real sense in which this stuff, the, these changes matter in uh, the, the nuts and bolts of government processes here in Canada and in Ontario. And finally, of course, uh, books of condolences have been made available for those who wish to extend their sympathies uh, to the royal family. The books are located in the main lobby of the legislative building from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. until the day of the state funeral. Great. Let me share two quick Queen's Park stories with you here that relate to the royal family. First of all, I, I never met the queen. I never saw the queen. I did meet the new king. Uh, King Charles III, several years ago, came to Queen's Park, and I got invited to, you know, be part of that group of people who just stands in a line, and he comes over, and you say a couple of words, and you shake hands, and it's all very charming and wonderful, and um, and, and, and I have to say, very cool. It's It was very cool. He was not the king yet, obviously. He was just the prince at that point, but it was very cool, and I remember Peter Mansbridge was part of this group as well, the former chief correspondent of the CBC, and... Um, and we all looked to Peter to sort of be the, the leader of us because we knew he would want to say something clever to engage the prince in conversation. And apparently the prince the week before had been on the BBC and had done a, some weather reporting on the BBC. <laughs> so Peter asked him how he thought, you know, whether he had a future as a weatherman on uh, television or something like that. Anyway, it was all pretty cute. Um, the other story I wanted to tell was about 1984 when the queen had one of her visits to the province of Ontario. And there was a cabinet minister in Bill Davis's government named Jim Snow. And if you've driven along the Queen Elizabeth Way, which is not named after this Queen Elizabeth, of course, it's named after the Queen Mum, you will note when you get to Oakville, which was Mr. Snow's old riding, that there is a road there called the Jim Snow Parkway that goes up from the QEW and north up into Halton region. That's not a coincidence. That is not a coincidence. <laughs> you are right. That was a little parting gift he gave to himself since he was the Minister of Transportation. He could name roads after himself. Nice work if you can get it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Bill Davis, of course, the Premier, takes the Queen around and shows her various things. And then at a certain point, for whatever reason, he, he passed the Queen off to Jim Snow, whose responsibility was to shepherd her through the next part of her trip. And Jim Snow did something extremely controversial. Do you remember this? Uh, no, I was three. Oh. <laughs> okay, so you don't. As he was guiding the queen from one group of people to the next, he put his hand on her back. And that apparently, oh, the cameras all went, ksh, 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 ksh. you cannot touch the queen. That picture of Jim Snow touching the Queen's back was on the front page of every paper in the country and in Great Britain the next day. Fleet Street had a field day with it. And, you know, all sorts of criticism of how, how could this barbarian touch the it's queen? Colonial he, bumpkin. Yes. Yeah. How, did he, how did he not know any better? Anyways, he, I guess he didn't. And the queen, of course, rolled with it all. She did not express any indignation of any kind because, you know, she's pretty cool about these things. But there you go. Jim Snow had his moment on the front page of every paper in Britain. 
because he touched the queen. I, I do remember... Uh, I believe it was uh, Ralph Klein was still premier of Alberta. And at one point he was giving the queen a tour and he stepped in front of her like in a, in a, in a tour of a museum or an art gallery or something. And that was another one of those moments of like, oh, no, nobody's allowed to walk ahead of the queen. Kind of the way Donald Trump did when when he visited Great Britain. Right. Yes. So lots of. Intricate protocol. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, there are lots of those kinds of stories, and uh, there's a lot of obviously sincere mourning going on in in the UK and in Canada right now. But of course, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that lots of people, including perhaps some of our listeners, uh, have more complicated feelings about the monarchy and its role in British and Canadian government. Uh, we in this podcast we are going to focus on the uh, direct impacts the Queen's death has on Ontario politics and government. But I do want to point folks to the piece we published earlier this week at. TVO.org by Drew Hayden Taylor on Indigenous Perspectives on the Crown. Great. Okay, let's uh, move on here and get to our second issue, which is back to school. You know, the kids, this is now week two for going back to school. COVID restrictions, as probably people have heard, are much more sparse now that school is back in session. Uh, It's the first time since the beginning of this global health crisis that, for example, masks are no longer mandatory in school and in-person learning is now going to trump online learning. So just for some context, uh, on Monday, the government announced that the uh, Omicron-specific booster will be available for everybody over the age of 18 uh, starting on Monday, September 26th. Uh, People can make reservations actually starting now uh, with uh, the usual government website that we've been using since this all started. Uh, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, said that uh, people no longer need to isolate for uh, five days after testing positive uh, with COVID-19. They can return to work after the fever is gone and symptoms have been improving for 24 hours. They should still wear a mask for 10 days after onset of symptoms and be up to date with their vaccines. Moore called it a more permissive approach uh, due to better uh, ventilation, cleaning and, and high levels of immunization. Uh, Ontario has made third doses available to those between the ages of 5 and 11 uh, starting two weeks ago. And uh, bivalent vaccines are uh, available. As we mentioned, uh, uh, people who are 70 plus or in other vulnerable groups don't actually have to wait until uh, September 26th. Uh, They should be able to get access to those uh, immediately. So uh, these are the kinds of protections that the chief medical officer says justify the um, what I think you could fairly call a lower standard of caution or rigor. (laughs) Now, I know you know that Ontario really made a lot of headlines last year or the last couple of years because... I'm not sure there was another jurisdiction anywhere in North America that closed the schools to students in person more than the province of Ontario. We lost a lot of school days, our kids did. And the government of Ontario today has taken a real 180 on that. The Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, who was into our studio last week to do an episode of The Agenda, he said he wants students in school right to the end of June in a very stable environment, wants school, here's this word again, going back to normal. Uh, The opposition parties have said that they are concerned about whether enough has been done by the government to promote immunization in children. So we can expect to hear them uh, touch on that more in the days ahead. Uh, I should ask you, you've got a kid who's in the public. Mine mine are all too old. Mine are all gone now. I have no more kids in the public education system anymore, but you've got a kid in school. I do. How do you think about all this? Well, you know, I think I feel better about this uh, than I did this time last year. Uh, My my daughter was vaccinated last year. I talked about this on the podcast uh, about uh, getting her her, uh, doses earlier this year. Um, You know, despite the fact that 
there's just no way around it. COVID is is spreading more widely uh, this uh, September than it was last September, um, and yet. As I say, my daughter is vaccinated. Um, I, I feel reasonably confident that uh, you know she's going to get a third dose. Uh, we're still negotiating with her. We're still trying to do this gently, but at a certain point, it's going to happen. How old is she now? Uh, she's almost seven. You, you negotiate with a seven-year-old? Uh, somewhat. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. We're working on it. We just don't want it to be traumatic, you know? It is what it is. Um, there's no way around the fact that COVID is out there. But uh, I, I do feel better than I did this time uh, last year, I would say primarily because of the vaccines. And uh, yeah, that's sort of where I'm at. Now, Dr. Moore did talk about COVID as part of a broader, quote unquote, respiratory season this year. What do you think when he said that? Well, I mean, I, I guess the joke I made online was like, I hope every day is a respiratory day. I, I want to keep breathing as long as possible. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I read it as the chief medical officer saying that as we treat COVID more and more like other uh, respiratory diseases like the flu, maybe we should treat the flu kind of like we treated COVID, at least in some respects, right? Wearing uh, a mask, if you're, say, on public transit in flu season, that makes a lot of sense to me now, right? And going into flu season, I suspect, I mean, I, I don't ride transit as much as, as I used to, but I suspect I will be putting a mask on on the subway, at least during flu season, for a long time to come. In the hopes of not getting the flu, which is as much a pain in the neck as COVID is. Yeah, I, like, people yell at me online about, oh, you're going to wear masks for the rest of your life? Like, I don't like getting the flu. Mm -hmm. like, <laughs> I was getting a shot every year to, you know, make it as, as mild as possible. Like, of course, yeah. Why would, why would I not? Yeah. If you can avoid getting the flu, that's a good thing. I think so. Right on. OK, next issue. We are going to pivot to another bit of news that caught some attention this past week from the NDP at Queen's Park. Some of the party's MPPs are going on what they call a social assistance diet. Okay, JMM, what's this all about? Uh, five new Democrat MPPs will eat only what they can buy with $95.21 over a 14-day period. That uh, period has already started. It's September 6th to September 19th. Those five MPPs are uh, Chandra Pasma, the NDP critic for poverty and homelessness reduction, Monique Taylor, the NDP critic for community and social services, Lise Vaujois, the NDP critic for persons with disabilities and accessibility, Jessica Bell, the housing critic, and Joel Harden, the transit critic. Now, this is where I put my old timers hat on and say, JMM, you know, this is not the first time this has happened. In fact, uh, I recall, and I think it's probably 40 years ago now, there was a new Democrat MPP from the riding of Scarborough West named Richard Johnston, who is today a, um, how do I describe him? He's sort of a gentleman farmer in Prince Edward County. He owns a winery there called By Chadsey's Cairns and uh, makes some really nice wine. Anyway, 40 years ago, he was an MPP at Queen's Park, and he was the first guy to do this. He went on what he called then a welfare diet, only purchasing, only eating what he could afford to eat if he were on welfare. And he actually brought a great deal of attention to what at that time was a very low level of uh, social assistance rates. He embarrassed the Bill Davis government, the conservative government of the day, into raising the rates and, um, you know, re did, a, did a very important thing for people who for whom this is their sole source of sustenance. 
Uh, how about today? Where are we at on the numbers today? This, of course, comes on the heels of other uh, calls to increase the rates for Ontario's social safety programs. Uh, ODSP rates were increased slightly in the most recent budget that the Ford government brought in after the election uh, from $1,169 per month to $1,227 per month. That is a 5% increase that started on September 1st. Uh, there has been uh, no similar increase to Ontario Works. Uh, notably, there's been some dissent from the left uh, about this uh, uh, activism. Uh, former New Democrat MPP and friend of the show, Rima Burns-McGowan, uh, criticized the move on Twitter as uh, insensitive. Uh, others have used the phrase poverty tourism, uh, the idea basically being that, however, well-intentioned this is. Uh, these MPPs are reasonably well-paid and can't uh, really experience the poverty that people on ODSP do, and that this kind of um, uh, performance is not uh, is not sensitive to what they are going through. Um, hmm. Yeah, I see that. But on the other hand, these five have brought attention to an issue that might not otherwise receive it by virtue of the fact that they're doing this. And, and while we say it has been done before, uh, here we are talking about it again, which presumably is not a bad thing. No, I don't think so. And I, I think we will know how good or bad this activism has been uh, in some time, right? I mean, if this furthers the conversation and if in, let's say, the next fall economic statement or next spring's budget, the government further increases ODSP rates, then I think you would say this was part of that story and this was helpful. If it doesn't really change much, then I think the, the more critical reading of it may end up being the correct one. Uh, another item of the day that uh, I, I think I've actually found this one a bit perplexing, and this is about Bill 7, the More Beds, Better Care Act uh, that was uh, pushed through the legislature uh, without going through the committee stage, without getting that usual step of getting public input. Um, Minister of Long-Term Care Paul Calandra said the committee was bypassed in order to move the bill quickly and, and really uh, urgently address the need to free up acute care beds in hospitals, which are facing uh, really unprecedented pressure due to uh, shortage of nurses and, of course, uh, ongoing COVID pressures. Uh, the bill uh, says that uh, so-called alternate level of care patients, people who no longer need critical care or need the, the care that only a hospital can deliver but haven't yet been moved to a long-term care home. This bill would allow the government to send people to long-term care homes that are not of their choosing and without their consent to ease the burden on hospitals. I guess the, the thing that is perplexing here is that it, it became a lightning rod in a way that some other previous bills have not. Yeah, this has been one of the more controversial bills that the government's brought forward so far, because I guess some people think it's unclear what would happen to those who refuse to be transferred out of a hospital. And there are critics who are saying that if they, you know, if they do refuse to pay the uninsured rate of a hospital stay, uh, what happens then? That's 1800 bucks a night. Now, Doug Ford has gone on record as saying he thinks that rate is ridiculously high and he's still working out what the rate ought to be. Peter Tabbins, who's taken over from Andrea Horvath, who's now the interim leader of the NDP, says, quote, it's very clear people will get bullied. They will get huge bills. They will be pushed out the door. Now, that may be a little overheated on the rhetoric, but Tabbins is giving voice to those who are concerned that that the specifics of what's going to happen next are not very clearly stated so far. 
Another thing that is unclear is, you know, when we say that this bill could uh, see people forced to go to a long-term care home not of their choosing, it is unclear how far away people might be sent. I mean, you know, in Northern Ontario, for example, those distances can add up really, really quickly. And uh, the ability to see somebody, if you're a, a designated caregiver, like you might suddenly be faced with the prospect of traveling very long distances to see a loved one in long-term care. Uh, Paul Calandra, again, says that uh, the the government's uh, aim is to have people as close to their family as possible. But again, one of those things that we are still waiting for uh, the details to be fleshed out uh, concretely. I mentioned I find this topic a bit perplexing. And, and I say that only because, you know, obviously, I don't find it perplexing that people are, are concerned about what this bill may or may not do. We're talking about long-term care and hospitals and loved ones. But it's not unusual for this government to push bills through the legislature without a committee stage. Mm. They have done it before. They did it before COVID. They did it a bunch during COVID when there was a real uh, desire to, to uh, you know, push things through the legislature quickly. Um, and, and yet this one really faced a lot of intense scrutiny because of that that act of skipping the, the committee stage. I saw one reporter say, like, imagine the, the field day that federal conservatives would have if Justin Trudeau did this, right? Um, and uh, I, I, I can't explain it. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have an explanation for why this attracted so much uh, more fire than uh, previous instances have. Well, here's where I start when I start considering these kinds of issues, and that is, what what is the problem that the government is actually trying to solve? And in this case, it's not that complicated. We do have a problem. There are far too many older people who are living in hospital acute care beds that should not be living in those beds. That's not an appropriate place for them to live. They should be in long-term care homes. So the question then becomes, how do you make that happen? Well, in the past, We haven't, right? In the past, we've done nothing. We've allowed people to stay in those beds. If people didn't want to leave, they didn't have to leave. Now, from a systemic point of view, that takes up a hospital bed that another inpatient could be using. It's a poor expenditure of public money, housing long-term care patients in hospitals, and so the government is getting tougher on this. Uh, As I was recently reminded when I was at Health Sciences North in Sudbury, having someone look at my knee at three o'clock in the morning and saying, uh, they said, "Okay, you're done. You can go home now. And I said, oh, can I just stay here for a few more hours? And they said, no, the hospital's not a hotel. You can't stay here. And out they sent me into the night at 3 a.m. Hospitals have become hotels. But they're not supposed to be hotels. So this is the problem the government is trying to solve. And obviously, honorable people will uh, argue and disagree about how much you should have to pay if you don't want to leave uh, and how much you should pay if you want the privilege of staying in the hospital. But that is a problem. I think there's 6,000 people who are, uh, they call them in in the system, bed blockers. They are taking up beds that ought not to be used for the purpose they are currently being used. And that's a problem that needs solving. Yeah, and this is one of those times where, you know, there's lots about the the, the governance uh, during the pandemic uh, that I have thought to myself, you know, well, uh, Doug Ford or Kathleen Wynne, just to take the, the two most recent premiers, you know, might have wildly different governing philosophies. But when faced with the same problem, they, there's a lot that they would have done similarly. Um, and, I, you know, I don't think, for example, that they would have done absolutely everything uh, the same. But like certainly those first three to six months of the pandemic, I think Doug Ford and Kathleen Wynne would have 
faced a lot of the same decisions and would have done a lot of the same things. Now we're two years later, two and a half years later, and you know, I find myself wondering, you know, what would different governments do about this kind of problem? Because it is actually like it, it is legitimately a hard thing to ask somebody to say, you know, you know, you're going to a long-term care home. No, it's not the one you want. In some cases, we know that like the the long-term care homes that have spare beds are some of the ones where nobody wants to go because they're like places that saw lots of deaths during yeah, the not pandemic. Very good, not very good places to live. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like there's, there's, as you say, like reasonable people can can disagree about this stuff. But the the problem is a hard one, and I don't, uh, I don't envy uh, the government, but I, I wouldn't envy any government in this decision. <laughs> right. Let's get one more issue on the table here, and that is JMM. You know, the provincial government makes a bunch of appointments to what they call the ABCs of Ontario. That's the the agencies, the boards, the commissions. Uh, for which they make appointments and people make decisions. And, uh, well, here we go. Shock of all shocks, some of the people who got appointed uh, recently had actually given money to the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario in the past. What do you know? Uh, The government has recently appointed people to the Ottawa Police Services Board, uh, the Health Ministry's Consent and Capacity Board, the Human Rights Tribunal, Tribunals Ontario, and more. Uh, The opposition is essentially accusing Premier Ford of (laughs) reactivating his own gravy train. Uh, and, uh, you know, this, of course, comes after Ford himself made a you know, bit of a personal brand of criticizing others for doing this kind of thing. Well, I'm going to say something heretical here, OK, because this is this is the lowest of the low hanging fruit that every journalist should be able to just go over and kick because it's such an easy shot to take. But here we go. The progressive conservatives are in power. There are thousands of ABCs that they have the power to fill with appointments. It is not a completely crazy idea that they would like to fill those positions with people who share their political philosophy. If you've given money to the PC party, chances are you share that philosophy. So to me, the key question isn't, are you partisan Tories? The key question is, can you do the job? Now, if these people who've been appointed can't do the job, that's a scandal and we should call that out. But if they can, well, presumably that's what we want. We want people who can do the job and in most instances follow the government's view. Most governments, I have to say, actually do appoint a few high-profile opponents to show their good faith in the democratic process. I don't think that it's reasonable to expect a PC government to appoint people who are openly hostile to their agenda or to their positions. What do you say? (laughs) Well, there's obviously the question of optics uh, and, you know... uh credibility uh, for this government. Uh, Again, Doug Ford made fighting the gravy train, fighting um, these kinds of privileges, part of his personal brand uh, from the very beginning, from 2010, when he first ran as city councillor. That said, you know, uh, Canada is not that large. Ontario (laughs) is not that large in the grand scheme of things. The political class in Ontario is quite small. There's a really short list of people of any uh, bent who would even want these jobs, much less uh, conservative ones. Um, And we're not talking in many cases about a position for which you need specific expertise. In some cases, we're talking, and like I think of police service boards here, where at least part of the job uh, is not to be uh, an expert. You're, You're there to represent your community and try and give some oversight to police in that case. Yeah, have some good judgment. That's all. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, if, if there was some argument like, you know, I sh- probably shouldn't be put on the board of, uh, I don't know, but probably shouldn't even be, certainly shouldn't be on the TVO's board because that would be a conflict of interest. <laughs> but there's lots of jobs that I just wouldn't be good at, wouldn't 
you know, volunteer for, wouldn't want to see somebody like me appointed to. But there's lots of ABCs in this province where you're genuine, you're, you're sincerely interested reasonably well-informed person could do a pretty decent job of the job that's asked of them. You know what? I I, I see a job for you, actually. Uh-oh. I bet you'd be great on the Metrolinx board because <laughs> you care a lot about public transit. That's true. And I bet you, you know what? Should we should we start the lobbying effort right here on this podcast? Get McGrath on the, on the Metrolinx board. He knows a lot about transit and they need some oversight over there. What do you think? I suspect I don't have <laughs> that many friends in the premier's office who'd want to make that happen for me. Uh, Okay, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. We also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters. And we do talk about Queen Elizabeth II in this week's newsletter and many of her connections to the province of Ontario. Okay, here now is my quote of the week. And actually, let me just, let's mix it up a bit here. We're going to call it our quote of the week. Given the nature of the events of this past week, we will give the microphone on behalf of both of us to the Premier of Ontario. On behalf of all Ontarians, I'm sending our thoughts and prayers to the entire royal family, the people of the United Kingdom, and Her Majesty's many admirers all over the world. Long live the King. That was part of Doug Ford's remarks commemorating the second Elizabethan era. And that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, September 13th, 2022. We're back on our regularly scheduled programming, so be sure to tune back in next week. This week's episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shahayar Tajvidi. Production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. Remember people, COVID isn't over yet, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. And I will see you next week, Steve. You got it. (laughs) 